Welcome to the Headley May podcast. I'm Nick Headley and I'm sitting today in the offices of National Grid to record the latest edition of our podcast and the topic today is on diversity and inclusion. And who better than to join me for this discussion than two of the UK's leading general counsel, Helen Mahi of National Grid and Rosemary Martin, who literally, as of yesterday, has been announced as the new general counsel and company secretary of Vodafone. Welcome to you both, and thank you very much for joining me. Let me just start with a few statistics. You are two of 11 female FTSE 100 general counsel. If you look in the CFO function, there are just three FTSE 100 CFOs and only four FTSE CEOs. And then when you look at the composition of FTSE 100 board of directors, it's just 12.2%. Not great statistics, but perhaps turning to you, Helen, first. To win hearts and minds on this issue, it's a lot more than about quoting statistics, isn't it? Yes. When I took over responsibility for inclusion and diversity here, one of the key things was getting a coherent business case as to why this mattered. And essentially, we realised that we weren't going to achieve our business aims, our group strategy, unless we had the best people, unless we retained the best people. And we didn't think we were actually doing as well as we, we could do in that we wanted to have more women, we wanted to have more ethnic minorities. And we also felt we wouldn't be recognised externally as being the foremost utility unless we had the right inclusive and diverse culture and statistics. I mean, statistics are just one way to show that you ha- how you're doing. We also felt that um, we had probably concentrated too much on the diversity angle and the statistics and not enough on the inclusion because 75% of our workforce are male. So we produced an inclusion charter which basically is for everybody here and um, sets out what the work environment should be. So what people expect to be and how, uh, how they expect to be treated and what they will do about it. And that actually applies to everybody from the CEO to the janitor. And unless you get it right at all levels, um, you're not going to move forward. And Rosemary, you occupied a similar role at at Reuters. What what was your experience? Um, My experience was similar to Helen's. We also felt that we needed to articulate a clear and crisp business case and one that was relevant to the rest of the business strategy and I think that linkage is essential. For Reuters uh, it's a very international company and in order to be able to represent our customer base, the wider customer base, which is basically everybody, everywhere, we felt it was essential to ensure that we were bringing into our own company people from diverse backgrounds. And when we looked at our own statistics, we um, had uh, good diversity statistics uh, across the lower levels of the organisation. When you start looking up, the statistics looked much uh, less convincing. So there was a real issue there, not only around recruitment, but also about retention. And uh, as Helen has said, we felt at Reuters that uh, a key to being an effective organisation was being able to be innovative and nimble and creating a work environment that people wanted to be in. And for the, to achieve those things, you need, I believe, to have a uh, diverse workforce and one that respects uh, everything that people can bring to the table. To get that change is really difficult. And uh, I must admit, before I really started working on diversity, I hadn't appreciated how complex it is, both within organisations, how difficult it is to engender change. Practically, how do you then do that? How do you actually get people to 
to embrace it, to live it, and, and make a difference? Well, for, for us here, I think it was focusing on the inclusion. We, we realised that there was a lot of misunderstanding about what it all meant here. And that you know, the statistics are important, but it was much more the culture of the place. And so we, we used some, an outside um, firm, which does sort of drama for training, which we, we ran out at the top level. And it was really on how you behave. I, know, I can remember after that when we, we rolled out the training for all the directors, all the senior managers, in fact, all the board have been on it, non-execs as well, they've all done it. We're now rolling it out through the through middle management. But after the initial rollout, I, I had a senior manager who I know quite well, who I'd always thought was a really good guy, really good sort of, you know, live the values, etc. And he came into my office and said, I've just done the IND training. He said, it was amazing. I've never thought about IND before, I realised. He said, I'm having meetings at my staff meeting I have at 8 o'clock on a Monday morning. And he says, but half the people that work for me, they don't normally come in till nine because they drop off their kids. And I never thought about having the meeting at eight o'clock because it suited me and didn't suit them and how difficult it must be. I'm going to change when I have my management meeting. And I thought, great, somebody's got it. Small things like that, yeah. just acting in an inclusive way, can change an organisation. And is it about incremental change, this? Is it slowly winning hearts and minds and you know almost one by one there's a sort of tr trickle effect through the organisation or is there more of an alleluia moment? I, I, think it's, I think it's both. I think you need alleluia moments with very influential people because uh, in my experience there are sort of node points in organisations. There are people that haven't necessarily got senior positions but they are very influential. They can be powerful because, because they're quite often they're very charismatic. At Reuters we had... Uh, we, we took a similar approach to what Helen's described at National Grid. I came across something called micro-inequities training by a guy called Steve Young, who was former head of diversity at J.P. Morgan. And uh, micro-inequities is getting at the um, often completely unintentional discrimination that individuals uh, enact on each other. Things like going out for lunch with some employees more than others, shaking some employees by the hand when you meet them, but giving somebody else a pat on the back, which sends a message about the guy who's been packed on the back, is one of my team. Tiny, tiny individual actions that go on the whole time. And just as Helen has described in, with, with her case, often the individuals, the last thing they think is that they're being in any way biased or prejudiced or behaving in any way other than sort of respectfully towards their, their peers. It becomes blindingly apparent how these micro-inequities are occurring the whole time. At Reuters, we had the micro-inequities training and it was very powerful. We also um, used reverse mentoring, where we earmarked particular people that we knew could make a real difference if they got it in terms of understanding the impact of um, inequitable behaviour within the organisation. And with a great deal of care from uh, an external consultancy called, called Brooke Graham, we matched particular executives with people who were very different from them, different in all kinds of different ways, and, and we, were, we matched them carefully. So that, uh, say, a very senior sales executive who was a pretty testosterone-filled guy was matched with a black American um, girl who, who'd been a, uh, a secretary. And she had moved slightly uh, through the ranks. But for him, it was a real eye-opener yeah. to have sessions 
once a month over six months. And he went from being, I really don't know what all the fuss is about, why don't we just get on with making money and selling goods, that's what we're all here from, to I never knew it could be like that. And they became extremely good friends, and both of them absolutely started proselytizing uh, about diversity and uh, inclusion, and in particular about the value of this Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. And because this particular guy was very charismatic, to hear him saying, this really matters, and I want all my team engaged in doing something similar, it was kind of, whoa, if he thinks so, there must be something in it. And the other critical part, I think, is engagement at the top. And I think if you, if you have a, a, a chairman and chief executive who are uh, committed to creating uh, an inclusive workforce in the organisation, you can go miles very quickly. If you haven't, it's a real up and struggle. And when you say go miles very quickly, I mean, give us a flavour for for the Reuters experience in terms of the progress you made? This probably won't sound like a very good example, but it actually was much more significant than I think it sounds. Um, one of the things that we instigated was that all senior executive roles, any changes in those roles, had to have a diverse candidate slate put forward before a decision could be made as to who would occupy those roles. And although that sounds like a very simple, and surely it was happening anyway, kind of... Uh, change. In fact, it forced people across the organisation to think differently about who they were going to put into roles. There was no uh, target setting. We didn't go that way, but we said there had to be a provable, diverse, credible candidate list, uh, shortlisted for each role. And that did have an effect on the, the diversity of the people who were filling those roles over time. What other practical steps can you take? I mean, the things like fle flexible working, which is clearly going to be very important in, in the gender diversity issue. Uh, flexible working and flexible thinking, I think. Because I, I, I sit on our talent review panel for all the senior appointments here, and it'd be amazing the number of jobs that come up at senior level that have to be done full-time in the office. Absolutely have to be. And when you probe, actually they don't. So we've done one recently where the best candidate for this supposedly full-time senior position was for a woman. Well, it has to be done, has to be done full-time. And I think when you push back, you can actually say, well, you can do that role part-time, as long as she has support. And that's a great development opportunity for the person who's supporting her, because the day she's not there, they're going to have to step up. Okay, she can supervise. You know, it's win-win. Great for her, great development opportunity. Think slightly differently, structure the job slightly differently. That's what was done. It's working as a huge success, and that, that's one example. And I think, it, again, it's, it's an inclusion issue, because uh, when I was at Reuters, we had quite an issue in my own team where we had a lot of women working, a lot of them working part-time, but also there were a fair proportion of men as well. And one of the issues that I wanted to deal with was the sort of undertones about, uh, yes, there's flexible working that's, that's positively um, promoted within this department, but that means that there are different amounts of time being spent on jobs, apparently different amounts of effort, which may or may not have been the case. And one of the things that we wanted to address was to get those undercurrents out into the open and address as a team what we felt about flexible working, part-time working, sabbaticals and so forth. How were we ensuring that there was fairness, not only for those people who were working flexibly, but for those that weren't? 
And that uh, generated some very interesting discussions and came up with some very real action points. If you're not in the office all the time, can somebody else pick up your file and work with it? This is in the context of a, a legal transaction. Or can they not find your file? So one of the things we didn't have was a uniform filing system. It tended to be everybody had their own files in their own room or on their own laptops. Um, so we changed that piece of infrastructure to make sure that anybody could access anybody else's work at any time. So it's, it, it's small issues, but I think it's important to engage everybody in the debate. Otherwise, people can feel, well, I'm being disadvantaged because I'm not one of these special people that's been singled out for flexible working or to be sponsored because I'm a, a diverse candidate or whatever. So I think that openness and discussion about the issues, which can be very real, is very important. And I think it's also important to, to note that flexible working is always thought, oh, it's great for women. Now, I, I brought flexible working into my team before we brought it in generally at National Grid, and the first three people who asked to do it were all men. One, because it was a single dad, and the other two had really long journeys. And, you know, we set up some basic rules like, you know, I have to have a professional member of staff in the office every day. You can't all work at home on a Friday. But, yes, I will set you up with broadband. We will make sure you've got printers. You know, we will make sure you've got mobile phones. Um, so we made it a, a very positive thing for people, but also um, a responsible thing. I mean, people had to be responsible about it. And I think you have to trust people also with the flexible working. Just, you know, you can't sort of assume because somebody's not there, not, they're not doing things. But it's also, I think, the key thing is some people, and I had this particular problem with my team in America, they felt that that's great, we love the flexible working, but that's our career prospects gone. Mm. If we work flexibly, we won't get promoted. Um, my UK, UK general counsel, who has a young baby, was appointed in September, she works flexibly. Great, she's come up through the ranks. She has to leave at 4.30 every day for childcare arrangements. And it's great. It's not seen as a negative. Just going back as well, saying you mentioned Rosemary. The way business has historically been structured is very much around full-time work. And actually it's about re-engineering business to allow it to be more flexible and, and therefore a much more inclusive, innovative place to work. And it's focusing on output, not input. Exactly. And that, I think, that focus on output, that was certainly sort of an alleluia moment for us in, in our thinking of what is about uh, diversity and inclusion. It creates a real challenge, I think, for HR departments who are planning and uh, implementing uh, performance review systems. And to focus on outputs is, tends not to be how people think uh, when, they're, when they're assessing how their colleagues are working. Um, and I think getting, getting away from the how much do I see this person around the place as opposed to uh, what has this person actually achieved over the last six months or whatever the period may be is quite a difficult uh, mindset and change and you need different evidence as well and I think there is a real role for individuals as well to take the initiative and to be upfront about what they have achieved and I think perhaps women and I think it's also sometimes um, black and other minority groups are maybe not as good as they could be at blowing their own trumpets. And I think there, that you can engender change uh, as an individual by promoting what you do uh, more effectively. And I think that very much chimes with something we see at Heavy Bay when we're interviewing candidates. 
but often the difference at the most senior ends is your ability to build a profile for yourself within an organisation. And often with very talented women, that's the bit they don't do, even though their, their work is infinitely superior often to their male colleagues. And I suppose that raises the question of executive coaching and to what extent that can be beneficial in promoting diversity and inclusion within organisations. Um, I think coaching can. I think um, mentoring uh, can be very effective as well. And, and I suppose by the, the difference that I see is that with mentoring is that you uh, can both understand or you'll both know the culture and um, mores within the organisation so you can help each other work out how to navigate through that most effectively. I think, I think coaching is slightly different because I think it's very often more objective and more external to the organisation. I think it can be incredibly helpful and I do think many will think that coaching is a tool to help them get there and I would agree with that. Yes, yes, I would. I mean, I think you, you need a mixture of all three. You need the sponsorship so that the people are known, people, high potential people who are coming through the organisation are known at senior levels. You need the mentoring of people who have been there before. And I think the coaching, you know, what's coaching about? Well, it's trying to get the best out of everybody and get people to their, reach their full potential. And as you know, Nick, because I bore everybody with this, but you know, I'm training to be an accredited coach because I really do believe that you know one-to-one -one coaching in the right way can be enormously helpful for people. I don't think one can have a debate about diversity and inclusion without looking at some of the legislative moves that have gone on in the continent. And I guess the obvious one is, is Norway, where now it is law that 40% of boards have to be female. We've got... Sweden potentially following suit. I think Spain by 2015 will be at a 40% quota. And the French at the moment have a piece of legislation going through which in 2015 will see 50% of boards are female. Should we have legislation in this country? You asked the question about is it all about incremental change or can you make a big, a big leap? And I think the Norway example is, is absolutely fascinating that they've managed to do it. I think it was in 1992 they had 3% of the, of the public listed companies had, uh, were women board members. Uh, 16 years later, it's 40% done by legislation. Between 1992, over that next decade, until 2002, they had managed to increase the women on boards by, by another 3%. So it was up to six, it took three years, uh, 10 years to get to uh, a 3% increase without legislation and then a further six years to get to 40%. I mean, it just speaks masses. I have to say, I think sometimes you do need Ukrainian legislation to have an effect, and I think the Norwegian example is an, an example of that. And I do welcome it. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm not quite there yet. I must admit, when I first heard about Norway, I thought, that's just wrong, you know. The quality is going to be sacrificed for the statistics. It can't be right. But I, I'm, I'm coming to the conclusion that you are not going to... We, we would not get the dramatic change here unless we do something dramatic to, to assist that. Because I think it's, it's appeared, you know, over the last few years, you look at the number of statistics of, of women directors in the FTSE 100 and 250. It's not changing very much, is it?
And, and, you know, you'll find that boards will have, oh, yes, we must have one woman, and we've got one woman, that's fine. And, you know, it, all the evidence shows unless you get two, three, four women on a board, the, the company's culture doesn't really change. So how are you going to get that step change without legislation? I don't know. I think, I think things like the Equality Bill, um, which uh, is going through in the UK at the moment, may help. I... I <laughs> I thought it was a rather nice comment was made about, um, in connection with the French legislation that's going through, where one very senior French uh, woman executive said she felt she had changed her position from not wanting this kind of legislation to deciding perhaps it was necessary. But she said, you know, frankly, it's rather humiliating that we have to have it. And I thought that was a good word to describe it. I think there, I think there are risks with it. I, I think the last thing women and minority groups want are to be tokens anywhere. And yes, I think this kind of legislation uh, short, creates short-term tokenism on a big scale, but I think that might be a cost that's worth paying for the longer-term social sure. benefit. Yes, but the key thing is if you have the legislation coming in six, eight, ten years or whatever it is, you have to get the number of women ready. So that means it's not just waiting, is it? It's actually saying, well, what do we need to do to develop these women to make sure that they can yeah. really contribute to to boards to, you know, to really make a difference. Yeah. So it starts now. And, and if you've got that sort of sword of Damocles hanging over you in six years, it forces companies to do things, which I think is, is a good thing. I still just feel like, you know, as you said, Rosemary, couldn't we do it another way? It just doesn't seem it's quite right to me. Yes. <laughs> but it may be the only answer. Yes, that's right. Well, listen, thank you very much indeed. Fascinating debate. And it will no doubt continue. Thank you very thank much. You.